You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 171. Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host for today's show, Matt Podolsky. Today, we are going to learn about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, a piece of legislation that the Trump administration is attempting to dismantle 100 years after it was passed. We'll be listening to a presentation given by the chief network officer of the National Audubon Society, David Ringer. David will be highlighting the key role played by the Audubon Society in the passage of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act 100 years ago, as well as how Audubon is currently working to ensure that this and other important protections for birds and our environment are maintained. David gave this presentation back in November of 2018 as Audubon was winding down its celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but this message remains equally critical now at the start of the new year. While our current political situation can be downright depressing, it's important to remember that we do have options for making our voices heard. Here's David. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you and my first visit to Boise. So yes, this is the bird that started it all for me. The painted bunting, as Michelle said. Uh, I was always a kid that was out of doors as much as I could be, bringing creepy crawlies into the house, much to my long-suffering mother's frustration. Uh, One distinct memory is putting a shell from a cicada nymph on my finger and sneaking up behind her while she was playing the piano and sticking my finger right in front of her face, which created quite a dramatic reaction. Um, So through all of that, my parents continued to cultivate my love of nature and specifically birds. And uh, as Michelle said, one day when I was in high school, I saw an Audubon chapter field trip notice in the local paper focused on this bird, the painted bunting, uh, which reaches the easternmost part of its range uh, in in the central population of Missouri. So I went out and uh, had looked at, you know, downy woodpeckers and things like that in the backyard. And all of a sudden, I discovered this whole new world of these beautiful, amazing birds that migrate up and down through the hemisphere and a whole community of people around them who love them and are working to protect them in all kinds of different ways. And I was hooked. That was it. Um, So from there, uh, I've done a a number of other things in my career, but shortly before the BP oil spill, I joined Audubon on staff um, and then ended up working all through that crisis. Um, So uh, that's a little bit about how I got here. Um, And what I want to talk with you about tonight is the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and the Year of the Bird. So how many of you know that 2018 we're celebrating as Year of the Bird? Most of you in the room, terrific. There's some more information on the table back there. So Year of the Bird is a recognition of one of America's most important wildlife conservation laws, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which was signed into law in 1918. So we're celebrating the centennial, and we got together with the National Geographic Society and the National Geographic Magazine, with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, 
and with about 200 other partner organizations across the hemisphere, including Golden Eagle Audubon Society here in Boise, and said, this is a real milestone. We need to celebrate the 100th anniversary of a decision as a country to protect and conserve our bird population. So uh, every month this year, National Geographic is putting a bird-focused story in the magazine, which is one of the highest circulation magazines in the country. Uh, So this is an opportunity to reach millions and millions of people this year with the joy and wonder of birds, with the story of their migrations, and with information about how we can continue to protect birds uh, into the next century of conservation, uh, which is what I'm very interested in doing. So hopefully you've seen some of these National Geographic magazine stories. You've seen some of the uh, stories that Audubon is publishing. uh, And I know that here in the Boise area, some of your field trips and events are fitting into this focus as well. So going back to uh, the beginning of the whole journey that got us here where we are today as Audubon and as a country that has a law like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act on the books. We have to think about spectacular birds like the great egret, the snowy egret, roseate spoonbill, and brown pelican, which were all birds being hunted to extinction at the turn of the last century for their plumage. So these incredible nuptial plumes that birds like great egrets have were in vogue for use in hats and other fashion applications. And so the birds were being slaughtered by the millions for their use in the fashion industry. At the time, there was no way to prevent that. We had no legal framework in place, and we had no cultural consensus around protecting these organisms for their own sake and for enjoyment of them in the wild. And so don't worry, I'm not going to go all the way through this. We don't have enough time for that. Um, But I did want to just hit a few highlights about how we got to where we are today. It's really a 30-year story, starting in the, uh, in the 1880s, when people started to realize, wow, we have hunted certain birds like the great auk to extinction. We've wiped them off the face of the earth. Other birds like the passenger pigeon, the Carolina parakeet, are declining very rapidly. And you have to understand that up until about the time of the Civil War, the concept of species extinction was controversial. It was seen as alarmist. People simply didn't believe that humanity had the power to wipe other species off the face of the earth. But by the 1880s, we had seen it happening, and we could see other species on the same path. But the problem was, all we had were a few state-level laws that tried to regulate uh, the seasons and bag limits for hunting. There was no federal framework, and some states didn't have any laws at all. So you could kill as much as you want, whenever you wanted, and that's why we were seeing this downward trajectory for so many bird species. So a number of individuals around the country started various efforts to say, we need to do something about this. We need to bring public attention to the problem. We need to make different choices as a culture. Um, So George Bird, amazingly, Grinnell, uh, started the first iteration of the Audubon Society in 1886. And he was so overwhelmed with interest that he quickly fizzled out. He he wasn't able at the time to sustain uh, the organization. But in 1896, 
As usual, it takes women to get things done. Uh, Harriet Hemingway and Mina Hall founded the Massachusetts Audubon Society, which is an organization still going strong to this day. Within two years, by 1898, there were a couple of dozen Audubon societies in major cities and some states around the country. And these folks started using their purchasing power and their social connections to make it unpopular to use uh, hats and other sorts of uh, clothing items that were using unsustainably sourced bird feathers. Uh, in fact, what they started doing was designing hats that had silk flowers or fake cherries, and folks at the time called those Audubon hats or Audubon bonnets because of, they were seen as an alternative to these uh, garments that used bird feathers. Um, so the first efforts were not, in fact, legal and political. They were people talking to each other and starting to change what was seen as socially acceptable and then providing some alternatives in the market to uh, what people were doing as they chose to adorn themselves and express their, their personal style. Um, so there was a whole series of things that happened uh, between 1896 and the 19-teens where people were trying different approaches um, uh, to, to laws that would protect birds. Because obviously a social movement is part of the answer to the question, but we also have to have a strong framework in place. Um, so I won't go into all of this. There are a couple of really interesting books uh, if you're interested in the details. But by 1916... We were in uh, a situation where the world was at war, World War I, or the Great War, it was known at the time. Um, one of our allies on the global stage was Great Britain, which still had a much closer relationship with Canada than they do today. And so very interestingly, early Audubon activists were saying, we need to do something that supports our ally during this time of war. And you know what it's going to be? We're going to tell them that when their birds are in our country, we're going to take care of their birds. Wouldn't that be patriotic? <laughs> How amazing is that? Here we are at a time of global war, and folks are making time to think about birds, to think about natural resources, and to recognize that responsibility that we have to each other, not only across state lines in this country, but across national lines. Um, and there was a lot written at the time about how birds are part of our culture. They, they protect our crops from pests. Um, and this was seen as a patriotic act at the time. Uh, so we signed a treaty in 1916 with Great Britain that said we will protect the birds across national borders between Canada and the United States. Now, as is true with most things in this country, we need an act of Congress to actually implement a treaty that we make with other nations and set up systems for dealing with it. So that's what the effort was that ended in 1918 to pass legislation that would actually put all of this stuff into a framework that could be implemented in this country. So these early Audubon activists, as I said, they started with a position of using social influence, changing their buying and consumer habits. Then they moved on to this effort to find a political framework, a legal framework, to implement conservation protections. And how did they do this? Well, what they did was they took a silent movie into the halls of Congress showing the horrors of the plume trade. Um, and if you, if you know Tabasco sauce, if you look at the label, it says the E.A. McElhaney Company. So E.A. McElhaney was an entrepreneur from Louisiana, 
right at this time, and he funded the creation of a silent film that could be shown as an attempt to lobby for the passage of, the, of this legislation. Early Audubon staff also organized telegram drives where if a senator wavered on bird protection language, they would call back to the state Audubon Society and folks would send in telegrams and they would set goals of how many telegrams would come into these congressional offices in a particular day or week. Um, So folks were using the media tools they had at the time to say, this is what we care about in this state, in this district and we want to protect our birds, and we expect you, our elected officials, to vote the right way. Meanwhile, they also started an education program, and they started working with children in schools and in communities so that they would start to change how people were educated about birds and about our natural resources from a very early age. So if this is all sounding familiar, it's because this is a lot of what Audubon does even to this day, education practical steps we can take on our own in communities and working with our elected officials to translate our values into a legal framework. So that 30-year effort from 1886 treaty and and 30 years later, two years later, we passed the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And this, I can't underscore enough, is a seminal moment in American history because it's the first time that we say we have an obligation as a nation to steward our wildlife to protect birds across state and even international boundaries. Uh, And that fundamentally resets, at that moment, how we think about our natural resources, our birds, and our relationship to them. It was visionary, not only in the country, but in the world at that time. So briefly, it survives the Supreme Court challenge in 1920. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the famous, writes the majority opinion upholding the constitutionality of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And we're off and running from there, a century of conservation. And this law stays strong. Of course, we have to update uh, how we think about it from time to time as new technologies emerge, as new threats emerge. Uh, But from there, uh, we have fundamentally said we are a nation that values our birds, the ecosystems they inhabit, and we're going to take care of them together. So that brings us to today. And um, I want to personalize this a little bit. Michelle mentioned that I worked on the Gulf Coast during the BP oil spill. So uh, how many of you have ever birded on the Gulf Coast or in Florida? Okay, a few of you. Yep. So you may recognize scenes like this, and if you haven't ever gone, I can't recommend it enough, especially in April and May when migration is happening, the resident birds are nesting. But this is a scene of a brown pelican nesting colony in Louisiana. So these gigantic birds that certainly make you believe birds really are dinosaurs, um, all get together on these small islands, sheltered in bays, protected from predators who can't access these islands uh, from the land. And they build these very closely um, packed together nests. And they grunt and they move around and they fly in with fish and they sort of squabble over little territories. Um, And there's just so much life and uh, movement and activity. And if you get close enough to them, you can look at these birds in their bright white eyes. They have these incredible piercing white irises, and they will look back at you. They're intelligent, and they're curious, and uh, you can see them sort of wondering what's going on. Uh, But they're not fearful, 
And um, so we had scenes like this in April of 2010 before the oil was unleashed on the Gulf Coast uh, and for decades and decades past. Scenes, by the way, which were possible because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, because of the Endangered Species Act, which then rescued brown pelicans again in the 70s and 80s uh, when they were being um, decimated by DDT in the environment. So time and time again, pelicans and other birds like them have faced threats. And time and time again, we as Americans have come together and said, we want to preserve these birds and their environments, and we're going to do that together. So here we are in April of 2010. And I saw scenes like this that are full of so much joy and so much beauty transformed into scenes like this, which I will not leave out very long because it's a little bit difficult to look at. But these are uh, Rosia spoonbill chicks that fledged on this island and were immediately covered in BP's oil and didn't live through their first summer. Um, This is an adult brown pelican that is covered head to toe in oil. It was preening frantically, uh, which is the only instinct they have when their other feathers are covered with oil. Of course, it doesn't help, and they end up ingesting some of that oil as well. Um, And this is hard to see. The sunlight was very strong, but uh, these little brown blobs here are uh, royal tern chicks, was an entire colony of about 250 royal turned chicks. Every single one of them was covered with oil and died uh, that summer because of the oil spill. So incredibly painful, heart-wrenching uh, to be a part of. But in the aftermath of that disaster, because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, BP was liable for $100 million in fines, specifically because of the birds that they killed and harmed in that disaster. There were lots of other fines, of course, for which they were also liable and other companies associated with the disaster. But specifically because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, they had to pay fines uh, to help restore the populations of these birds. Of course, it can't bring back the birds that died, the birds that suffered, but it can help do uh, habitat restoration, can help with captive breeding or releases if necessary, and it can help recover those populations of birds over time. So in January, um, the White House released a new legal interpretation of this century-old law that that said, you know, if you didn't mean to kill the birds, it's actually fine, and we're not going to enforce the law against you. So that means you still can't um, shoot birds outside of hunting season deliberately. But if there's an oil spill if you left the cover off of your oil pit and a flock of ducks landed in there thinking it was water, if birds are hitting the power lines that the scientists told you they would hit, if you ran them through there and didn't mark them appropriately, if you don't mitigate your wind installations, all of that is fair game. And the new legal interpretation is, if you didn't mean to do it, it's fine. So that means that if a disaster the scale of the BPO spill happened today, that $100 million in fines to restore those bird populations on the Gulf Coast wouldn't exist. Our government simply wouldn't pursue uh, those companies that might be responsible for a disaster like that to help recover our birds under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Well, having gone through this experience and having happily seen a lot of progress made on the Gulf Coast to clean up the habitat, restore the bird populations, I find that unconscionable. And I think that we have to continue as a society to uphold these common sense protections of our birds that also allow industry to coexist 
with wildlife, with ecosystems, if they take some practical precautions to limit um, deaths that they know could occur and to make restitution when accidents occur. So um, some of you have probably heard something about this. Um, There's also an effort in Congress to actually rewrite the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in a legal sense to change that interpretation and make it part of the law instead of just how the administration operates. Um, So we have this two-pronged, unprecedented assault coming from Congress and from the White House. And so we are fighting back, and some of you in the room have been helping in this effort. Um, Others, I have some some thoughts on what you can do. So um, first, uh, we've got a legal uh, uh, effort going on. We've got a lawsuit that is not only Audubon, but several other conservation organizations as well. But the lawsuit is titled National Audubon Society versus Interior. And the the thrust of that lawsuit is it was unlawful for the federal government to release this new opinion in January, flying in the face of decades of precedent and protections. So that lawsuit is ongoing. Um, We're also trying to make sure that as many people as possible know about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, everything that it's accomplished through the years, and why it's so important to keep fighting for it into a new century of conservation. So our leaders across Audubon are speaking out in the national media, in newspapers like the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, um, national public radio, television. And we've also got uh, the amazing Audubon chapter network working on this problem at the local level too. Um, So we just had a chapter leader in Illinois, for example, who published a letter to the editor in his local paper talking about how important the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was to that part of Illinois and why they expected their elected officials to uphold it. So the national level at the local level, making sure that there's conversation about the importance of this law, which has been so effective and is so ingrained in our culture that a lot of people have forgotten about it, frankly. Um, So we want to make sure that we don't forget and leave it vulnerable to the kinds of attacks from people who want to get rid of it. Um, Another really cool idea that uh, one of our our Audubon leaders in Nebraska had was what if during Year of the Bird 2018, we get uh, governors and mayors to issue proclamations saying, this is the year of the bird, and we uphold the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So we've had about 30 states and cities around the country issue proclamations saying, here in Nebraska, we generate whatever million dollars from tourism to see our sandhill cranes. We responsibly hunt, uh, and this is year of the bird, and we're celebrating that and uphold the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, So this is a really interesting way of demonstrating grassroots support for a law like this, which we can then take into elected officials in Washington and say, listen, I don't know where you're coming from, but here's why your constituents, your governor, your mayors, and your, um, uh, your electorate are doing at the local level. So it's a powerful tool. That campaign is still going on. So uh, if there's interest here in Idaho, uh, we can connect some of you to, uh, to a couple of staff at our D.C. office who can help get that effort off the ground here in Idaho. Uh, but that's proved to be uh, a really popular way that people can take action locally and counteract that inside-the-bubble kind of thinking going on in D.C. with expressing the values locally. Um, 
bird walks and conversations. So a lot, elect, a lot of elected officials simply don't know about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, why it's important, and that their constituents care about it. So what we've been doing all throughout this year is when elected officials, particularly at the federal level, are home from Washington, back in their districts on recess, we're inviting them out on bird walks. And so Audubon chapters, Audubon Nature Center leaders and others are saying, come out to our sanctuary or come out to this park where we do walks. We want to walk with you. We want to show you some of the birds in your state. And we want to tell you about a couple of things that are really important to us. We're also doing this at the federal level when folks are in D.C. So in uh, three weeks, I'm going to be leading a bird walk on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. for a group of congressional staff and talking about this issue, among other things as well. And so it's proven an amazingly um, depolarizing way to get people out talking about birds, talking about habitats, talking about the kinds of investments that Audubon members and chapters are making around the country in their communities every day with their elected officials. Um, and then it's an easy bridge into this conversation. So that kind of relationship building is what our forebears did in the 19-teens to get the legislation passed initially. And now it's our turn to build those relationships, to remind people of what's important. Um, and we have such great ambassadors in these birds and in the ecosystems they call home. Um, I can guarantee you that we're seeing a much better response from elected officials than, say, angry town halls on other kinds of issues that are confronting them. The invitation to go out and look at some birds sounds pretty attractive right now. Um, and then just, uh, oh, okay, so two other things. So uh, we're also working in states where there are receptive climates to establish state-level laws that essentially mirror the Migratory Bird Treaty Act at the state level. And what that does is it creates a more complex legal environment. Again, it shows grassroots support for this stuff. Um, and it means that it's harder to roll back these federal protections. So there's a bill moving in California, for example, that would provide a state-level backstop uh, to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act protections. And then also at the state level, just last week, I believe, eight state attorneys general created a lawsuit that sued the Department of the Interior for that legal interpretation that DOI released in January. Um, so it's a similar lawsuit in content to our lawsuit as well. Uh, but rather than coming from NGOs and other uh, organizations representing grassroots members, these are actually coming, uh, this lawsuit is actually coming from state attorneys general, um, which is a really encouraging development to see. So this is a little bit about the uh, defensive game that we're playing. And um, early indications are that the administration is dug in and some of these legal battles are going to have to play out, at least as long as this administration is in power. Um, on the legislative side, a lot of members of Congress are saying, oh, we didn't know people cared so much about this. We didn't know about the issue. So there's more receptivity, I would say, on the legislative side. And it's really showing the value of showing up and speaking out. And forecasts need to continue to do that. Because we're certainly not out of the woods. There are enough elements in Congress that are interested in ramming through a permanent weakening of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that we've got to remain vigilant, got to remain active 
all of these tools are things we need to continue to deploy, um, but we're starting to see some uh, initial encouraging responses to a lot of this outreach media coverage and conversation. So um, what I want to do to connect a bit of the history with where we are today and the work that's going on now uh, and sometimes the exhaustion and discouragement that we can feel in fights like this, I want to read you a couple of paragraphs that were written in 1917 by a woman named Alice Hall Walter. And uh, Mrs. Walter and her husband were both officials in the early Audubon Society. Um, uh, Alice Hall Walter was the education secretary at the time. Uh, so she did a lot of the work with schools, with children. And this, um, this particular article, The Need of the Nations, Ways in Which Audubon Societies Can Help, was published in 1917. So again, World War I is still raging. We're in the early stages of what would become a massive global influenza pandemic. Um, and, and Alice, Mrs. Walter, is wrestling with what is the role of the Audubon Society and our efforts to protect birds in this global climate that they were facing at the time. And uh, so this was published in Bird Lore, which was the predecessor to Audubon magazine. And honestly, I've been reading these words about every week because I'm finding so much encouragement in what she said and how she said it. So I'm going to read you just a couple of paragraphs from this, um, this article now. Every available resource is needed today in the worldwide struggle for lasting peace, she said. It is no time for prejudice or indifference to retard necessary action. It is no time for extravagance or waste, both of which are speedily coming to be recognized as criminal abuse of resources. It is, in italics, a time for calm, clear thinking, few words, and definite, effective action. In spite of the gloom overshadowing not only foreign countries, but also our own, the light of the greatest and grandest opportunity for the betterment of society and the uplift of civilization is breaking. Hope for the future and faith in the highest ideals beckon us on with stout hearts toward a glorious goal. The resources of the Audubon Society are greater than we may think in this critical emergency. First of all, we now have a far-reaching organization representative of nearly every part of our country, an organization which, unlike many others, reaches young and old alike. An appeal made through the state, national, and junior Audubon societies will reach thousands of people. Second, we have behind us a greater moral and financial support than at any other time. If we outline practical and definite lines of work, we shall undoubtedly find ways and means to carry them on. Third, we are in a position to take up needed work at many separate points, with almost no further preliminary steps of investigation. In other words, we are already organized, supported, and equipped to do necessary work for the nations of the world quickly and efficiently. These are important resources, for without goodwill, intelligence, and method, very little can be done. 1917. Amazing. Uh, and two of, the, two of the phrases that really stand out to me in a, I think, soaring passage are definite, effective action and uh, um, practical and definite lines of work. 
And the fact that this is one of the things that stood out to Mrs. Walter 100 years ago, um, practical, definite lines of work, I think is one of the things that still inspires me about Audubon chapters, Audubon members, Audubon staff to this day. We don't wait around for the outcome of big political battles. We engage in those, certainly, and we must. But we also take practical, definite action in our communities to protect our birds, to restore habitats, to bring people into the joy of nature. These are just two examples. Um, native plants, you heard some announcements about that um, earlier tonight. And I think that this is one of the clear illustrations of how Audubon people step up and get things done. We plant plants, we restore habitats, we plant plants in our own backyards even, in our kids' schools, in our church and congregation yards. Um, we're changing things out there on the ground, getting our hands dirty, making a difference. Um, I know Idaho is where Idaho is, but a lot of Audubon chapters are situated along coasts on the Pacific, Gulf, and Atlantic coasts. And earlier this year, we released a program that uh, creates a framework for stewarding beach nesting bird colonies so that they don't get run over by ATVs or people's off-leash dogs. So there are thousands of Audubon members out there on beaches around the coasts of this nation protecting our birds um, by physically standing in the way, uh, not in a hostile way, of course, but with scopes, letting kids see the baby lease turns on the sand, um, and educating communities about these, um, these birds that they can be proud of and they can take steps to protect. Practical, definite action. Amazing, and here we still are. So uh, I wanted to underscore briefly the native plants message. Um, I know most of you are, are part of Golden Eagle Audubon Society. Some of you may be uh, with other organizations or other parts of the community. Um, but this is uh, the, the opportunity to grow more native plants in our yards, even on our balconies, uh, and in uh, restoration areas in our communities is one of those remarkable ways that we can take uh, the lives of birds that often span our entire hemisphere and give them some of the resources they need when they're with us, whether that's for a summer, a winter, or just a day or two during migration. Because the resources that native plants offer our birds in terms of food, shelter, uh, and, and safe passage are certainly unparalleled by other plants that have purely ornamental value. So Audubon's Plants for Birds program is a nationwide focus on both individual action, things I can do at my own home and my own backyard. So the certification program that you heard about, uh, we've got Audubon chapters doing, all of that, uh, doing that all across the country. Certainly encourage you to check that out. Uh, all the way up to volunteer opportunities to plant native plants in public parks. Uh, we've got people that are doing uh, schoolyard habitat gardens in places like Baltimore, Maryland. Um, so it's a really great way to take that practical, definite action uh, to help birds in your own life and in your community. Um, so you heard Michelle mention my title, Chief Network Officer. I just wanted to take 30 seconds and explain what that means. First of all, it's not about technology, uh, not fundamentally at least, it's about people. So you've heard me talk about Audubon chapters, Audubon members. 
And you've heard me talk about the threats that birds are facing today. So we believe at National Audubon Society that uh, in order to meet the challenges that birds are facing, and in order to improve our communities and connect more people with the joy of nature, um, we need an Audubon network of members, chapters, nature centers, partner organizations that meets these four criteria. It's connected, that means we're learning from each other. We're not working in isolation, but we're drawing on ideas, programs, resources from across the whole country, even the whole hemisphere. It means we're capable, we have the resources we need to undertake that, those practical definite lines of work. Uh, that's financial resources, that's training, um, that's other kinds of things. Um, and then uh, we have to be diverse, and I have more to say on that in a minute. And then we have to grow. We don't have enough people who are committed to birds and their welfare, who are committed to improving their communities uh, through parks and habitat restoration and water cleanup. Um, so we need to grow the number of people that are a part of this effort in order to make sure that we succeed in our goals. Um, so that's what my job is, uh, working with folks like this all across the country um, to help build up these characteristics so that we can get our conservation work done, protect our laws, get more native plants in the ground, and continue a healthy population of birds across the country. Um, so I have uh, three encouragements as I close that I want to leave with you. And this is the first, shine your light. So in my dinner with the board members before this event, in the announcements that we heard at the beginning of the event, I hear, I hear so many stories about the kinds of efforts and programs that are going on here in Boise. And I hear stories like this all across the country. But what sometimes we forget to do is tell anybody about the great work that we're doing. So that's one of my, um, I don't want to presume that anybody else grew up in my tradition, but I grew up in Sunday school singing a song that said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it Okay, so a few of you had the same experience I did. Hide it under a bushel? There we go. Um, so this is my encouragement. As you do the wonderful work that you do in your own backyard, in the, in the parks and preserves that you help steward, with the children that you help engage and educate, remember to shine that light because it's such good and important work that people need to know. Other community members need to know. Elected officials need to know. People who make decisions about budgets and media, they all need to know. Here's an example. Um, there's a woman in western New York in the Finger Lakes named Mary Ann Perks, who's an Audubon chapter leader. And every few months, she writes an article for her local newspaper. And whenever she does, her husband will cut it out of the paper, a few ragged edges. He'll hand write a note, reintroducing them to me. Um, and mail it to me in the office. And I have to say, whenever that happens, it makes my week. Um, and I have them all tacked to the wall in my office. And uh, this was what she did in January for the launch of the Year of the Bird. And I just love this headline. And then she went on uh, at some length to explain what people can do in the Finger Lakes region to make a difference with Audubon. That is shining her light. That is Mary Ann Perk saying, I'm not just going to quietly do this good work over here, but I'm going to make sure people know how they can join and they know why it's important. So telling the story in the media, telling the story in social media, talking to your family and friends, bringing people to Audubon events is an example of how you can shine your light. 
Here's another one. This is in North Carolina. And we had, uh, I believe it was about 50 Audubon chapter members who all went to the state capitol in North Carolina this spring to meet with their state-level elected officials. So they had these colorful posters with birds. They had buttons that said, you're the bird. Uh, And they went in and they met with all of these North Carolina elected officials. And they talked about what's going on in different cities and communities around North Carolina that the chapters there are leading and then they express their expectations to their elected officials. Here's what we're doing, we wanted you to know, and here's what we would like uh, you to do in your position of influence and power. So that's another example of shining light. Um, And one thing that I often recommend is send your chapter newsletter to your different elected officials, your, your state senators, your federal senators, your governor's office, make sure people know what you are doing in your communities and shine that light, build those relationships. This is my second encouragement. So we talked about uh, briefly the need for diversity, the need for more people to join our movement. And I really strongly believe that we must include all people in the joy of nature, in our recreation and education, and also in the real work of conservation, um, the hard work sometimes. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, as I go around the country, um, probably the most common question I get from Audubon members, from Audubon chapter leaders is, how do we get more young people involved? How do we get communities of color involved? How do we get more Republicans involved? Or how do we get more Democrats involved? How do we partner with the church that is just down the street from our nature preserve and is never really connected with our programs? And so I'm glad to hear those questions because it indicates that people are thinking about being more inclusive in the work and building partnerships and building relationships because it takes all of us to get this work done. It really does. Um, So I am um, so glad to be here for many reasons, but one of them is I first met Liz Urban um, probably, Liz, seven years ago, six years ago, at a a training event for a program we used to have called Together Green. And I remember Liz being there, and I hope this doesn't embarrass you, but Liz was describing this idea she had for a program that would engage children of new American families. And you felt passionately about it, Liz. You weren't quite sure how you were going to pull it off, as I recall. Maybe you knew all along. but you, were, you felt so strongly about this that you had written the grant to get the program off the ground. You were stepping out of your comfort zone and you said you were gonna push through those partnerships, those challenging conversations, build your own skill sets in order to build a program called New Roots. And in those intervening years, um, that program has grown into something that's gotten national media attention um, that continues to receive community support and funding uh, thanks to the efforts of Liz and other people in this room, I'm sure. Um, And I just have to say that as I look across the Audubon network at efforts people are making to be more inclusive and engaging in their work, this really is one of the programs that stands out to me as an exemplar Um, both in its intent, in its generosity, and in its practicality, and how um, uh, clear it is in what it gets done every year. 
Um, so we had uh, a lot of fun this year working with, um, with public media here in the Western states to collaborate on a, a joint storytelling exercise between Audubon and uh, several public radio stations here in the West um, with video, with radio content, with online stories um, to talk about the work that you all are doing here in Boise through the New Roots program. So thank you for that. Thank you for supporting it and Liz through the years. Um, and when I say include everyone and let's find practical, definite ways to get that done instead of just wringing our hands about where are the young people, where are the other communities, let's get started. Let's find ways to bring people in. Um, here's another example. I don't know how many of you know this, but September 15th through October 15th every year is Hispanic Heritage Month. So this is not an Audubon thing. This is something that is recognized in the United States broadly, like uh, Black History Month in February, Women's History Month in March. So um, what we're doing this September 15th through October 15th is encouraging folks across the Audubon network and in our partner networks to have bilingual bird walks and use this month as an opportunity to reach out to a Spanish-speaking um, uh, religious congregation or um, organization of some sort, um, museum or cultural institution, and say, hey, we might not know each other, but we would like to change that. And we would like to acknowledge and celebrate Hispanic American heritage during this month, and we would like to come up with an event that we could do together and maybe offer uh, a bilingual bird walk or something of that nature. So uh, that's an idea. We will be talking about this more with the Audubon Chapter Network as time goes on. The next thing coming up is Native American Heritage Month in November. Um, so we think that as these months come along on a calendar, it's a great opportunity to remind ourselves to create new partnerships and outreach and to recognize the heritage and contributions that other communities offer in this country. So uh, I believe here in Idaho, something like 10 to 11% of your population is Hispanic. Um, of course, some of those people are fully bilingual in both English and Spanish, and the use of Spanish is a way of saying, you are included, you belong here, this is for you. And I can tell you that people who are from historically marginalized communities need to hear explicitly, you are welcome here, you are safe here, this is for you. I hear some Audubon folks say, well, everyone is welcome on our bird walks. Why do we have to make a big deal about it? But what I hear other people say is, I don't know if that's for me. I've shown up and not been welcome in places. And so I think that that experience has to take precedence over, well, I'm not biased. Of course everyone is welcome. Say it out loud. It's that easy. Say this is for you. And we're going to make an effort to have a couple of guides in Spanish language for the bird names here in Idaho. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity to build new partnerships, to get out of our comfort zone. And we have a resource here at Audubon. Um, if you go to audubon.org, there's a little globe on the top of the page, and you can toggle the website between Spanish and English. You can do this on your mobile phone. We have a guide to North American birds with all of the text provided by Ken Kaufman. Uh, it's the only free online Spanish language bird guide to North American birds. You can pull this out in the field, switch your language over to Spanish. We've also got some magazine and website stories that have been translated. Um, so that's a resource to, to help. And we think that these areas of monthly action and emphasis are a way to get started. Um, and. I'm very excited about a new program that we are piloting this fall called Audubon on Campus, 
which is going to be a campus chapter program uh, for Audubon. So what this will be is student organizations that are affiliated with their university. So they are an official student organization. They can get money from student government. And they're also affiliated with Audubon, the local chapter, the national organization. And so uh, we've, we've already seen more interest than we can accommodate this fall semester. Um, so we are hiring a staff member to get the program off the ground. We're bringing on another uh, person in a sort of fellowship position in December. Um, and so we're really excited about the potential that this program has to bring in a whole new generation of people to leadership in the Audubon Network and the bird conservation movement. All right, that was David Ringer giving a presentation in Boise, Idaho in November of 2018. If you'd like to learn more about the National Audubon programs that David mentioned here in his talk, you can head over to the show notes page for this episode where we'll share some relevant links. We'll also share links to learn about the local Boise Audubon chapter, Golden Eagle Audubon, and how they are working to engage new Americans in bird conservation with their New Roots program. These show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC171. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.